1: Welcome to the Bloomberg PL podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz.
2: Each day, we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor.
1: Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, Lisa, it was reported just recently that that $349 billion program to help small businesses reeling from the COVID-19 outbreak, that could actually be exhausted by Thursday, a top White House advisor said, but negotiations in Congress to replenish it remain stalled. To get the latest on what this means for small businesses, we welcome our next guest, Karen Mills. She's a senior fellow at the Harvard Business School, formerly Small Business Administrator for President Obama uh, from 2009 to 2013. Karen, it's so good to speak with you. Talk to us about the state of the small business owner out there. How tough is it and how quickly can aid get to that small business owner?
3: Nice to talk to you all. You know, this is the worst crisis for small businesses that I've ever seen. And as you mentioned, I was in the seat in 2009, and we thought that was pretty bad. Um, You know, we lost 2 million small businesses the first quarter. Well, when we look at our unemployment numbers, we're seeing 6 million last week. Most of those are small businesses uh, and their employees as you know this has a critical impact on the economy because half the people who work in this country own or work for a small business it's actually 47% of the jobs and these small businesses are now three or four weeks into a crisis and they only have on average three or four weeks worth of cash So they have had to lay off people and the question is how are they going to get the money from the PPP program and the other government relief in time for them to make a decision to keep operating because we know if we lose them it's a very long and slow recovery. It's six months at least to get a new business to start up if an old one fails. So the next two weeks are critical. So these loans, let's talk a little bit about them and the
2: logistics of it. We have heard that more than half of the $350 billion so, uh, so far allocated to the SBA program has been distributed. That program is expected to run out of cash in the next couple of days. What are the parameters around these loans? Do companies have to make sure to keep their employees on staff? Do they have to repay them? What do we know?
3: So, it's an actually amazing number, two hundred and sixty three billion as of yesterday, which is seventy five percent of the three hundred and forty nine billion has been approved now, only a very small percent of that apparently has been funded. so we'll come back to that issue because until you have the money, uh, it doesn't really do you any good. But one thing that is amazing in my tenure, the first year we were in office, we did all kinds of uh, increases in the guarantees, and we had a record year of $30 billion, a record year. Now, in one month, we're trying to get out 10 times that much. So it's it's unbelievable that banks have, have been um, actually able to get this done. Now, why aren't we getting money into the hands of small business owners? from the SBA the banks actually have to fund this money into the accounts of the small businesses and they haven't yet been doing that in part because the Fed and Treasury have said they will buy all these loans from the bank's balance sheet. They're 100% guaranteed by the government and that program has not gotten up and running. And the second thing that hasn't quite gotten up yet is that a bunch of the new fintechs like Square and PayPal and QuickBooks are only just getting their approvals. And they are really critical for the smallest small businesses. You know, the sole proprietorships that have been included here and folks who are looking for a $40,000 loan, a $10,000 loan, a $6,000 loan. Well, the banks don't do those small loans. So I am hopeful that this week will be a turnaround for them. Here's the problem. We're going to run out of money tomorrow. So Congress has to get this pipe refilled so the rest of the small businesses can get their money.
1: So... Karen, give us a sense of kind of what's really the issue here for this next round of small business loans. And we've heard it's 250 billion. Maybe the Democrats would like to move it up to 500 billion. You know, include hospital funding and think things like that. How do you think this is really going to play out?
3: Well, I'm talking to a lot of the senators this afternoon. I've been in touch with the House offices, and you know, they're having a fight over um, you know a whole set of things, but. What I'm saying is the matter is absolutely urgent. We've finally gotten the fire hose attached to all the pipes. We have to get this in the hands of small business owners. And you asked me earlier, how do they get it and what's it used for? And the answer is the bill is actually pretty smartly crafted to encourage small business owners to keep their people on the payroll. And instead of being alone, the PPP program actually is a grant, it's a refundable loan that um, you don't owe if you use the money to pay for eight weeks of payroll or other permitted expenses. And the other permitted expenses are paying your rent, which you know is gonna come up May 1st, so yeah. that's important, and mortgages and interest on your other loans. So it's actually a good bill because it understands People need money and they don't need a loan. They need a grant. And it's important that they keep their folks on the payroll so that they can get health care and that they can be there when hopefully businesses get to reopen their doors whenever it's safe to do so.
2: Karen, uh, just after Ray Dalio spoke, my mindset is, how will this world look after this scenario? And one thing that you pointed to was that fintech lenders, Intuit, Square, etc., have been instrumental in this whole effort to extend credit to small businesses. How will they emerge from this whole event in terms of providing uh, finances going forward?
3: Well, QuickBooks told me that they have spent the last two or three weeks while they were waiting for their SBA approval, to, you know, taking the TurboTax engine and making a user-friendly front end. I mean, these poor small business owners are trying to figure out how do they fill out the paperwork. And even if it's easy, they have to bring different documentation. And banks didn't know what documentation they needed for a while. Now, this new app is you know, automated and it asks you a bunch of questions. And if you use QuickBooks, it uploads your documents. PayPal has a similar user friendly uh, opening for these small business owners. So I think this could be a game changer for the smaller small businesses who have been having trouble getting into their banks and, you know, getting in the line because the bigger small businesses are, are more prepared and they're, they're getting to the front of the line. And if you see, if you have a small business and suddenly a new fintech becomes a trusted provider with a good consumer experience, you could see the fintechs doing a lot of good, but also ending up with a lot of goodwill. Because small business customers are going to remember who was there for them in this crisis.
2: Karen Mills, thank you so much for being with us. Karen Mills, Senior Fellow at the Harvard Business School, former Small Business Administrator for President Obama from 2009 to 2013, overseeing the efforts during that financial crisis with some valuable uh, insights into this one. David Katz joining us now, Chief Investment Officer of Matrix Asset Advisors, uh, joining uh, by phone from New York. David, when we look at the bank loan loss provisions totaling $24 billion so far uh, from Bank of America, Wells Fargo, JP Morgan, as well as Citigroup, do you feel like the market is inadequately pricing in the carnage that we're expecting in this earnings season?
4: Uh, we actually don't. We think that the banks are, the bank prices are far more sensitive to the current trends than most other companies will be. And the reason behind that is when you're looking at industrial companies or, corp, uh, or general corporations, the real concern is not how they did this quarter, but are they going to be able to survive it and where are they going to be in six months? When you're looking at the banks, there's a concern that they're leveraged and if the loans are this bad now and they get worse later are they going to be able to pay the dividends are they going to be able to survive is it going to be 2008 2009 so number one we'd make that distinction we don't expect other stocks and other industries and sectors to react like the banks that's first number two we actually think when the dust settles the banks are going to start to do much better uh, we've been on all of these calls, and, and basically what the banks did is they were in a pretty draconian way, uh, said, these loans, you know, there's going to be an enormous uptick in negative loans or non-paying loans. They took a big hit now, and because the banks don't want to uh, over-promise and underdeliver, deliver they then said, and if things get worse, these numbers are going to get a lot worse. So everyone yes. is looking at the bank numbers and assuming the worst. We think that they've taken a significant reserve. One thing that they did say is that they will get through this, that their Balance sheets are in very good shape. They're over-reserved. You know, one of the things people are trying to get a sense of is, is this big move
1: up off the bottom? Is it a head fake? Is it real? Are we going to retest lows? Because there's going to be a lot of dire data coming out over the next several months.
4: Well, we think that the last uh, three weeks is a great lesson in teaching people that you simply can't time the market on a short-term basis, and you really shouldn't spend a whole heck of a lot of time trying to call a bottom because the people that were trying to call a bottom all of a sudden missed the first 25% up. So we think the key for investors is – Take a 9- to 12-month time horizon, look at what's going to be happening uh, by the end of this year. The market's going to be looking at 2021 earnings, and on that basis, we think stocks are pretty cheap. And if that's your mindset and you're able to do that, you're able to buy some pretty decent companies at very attractive prices that are going to get through this period. And we think that's the most important question. We expect a lot of volatility. Uh, we would be buying in days like today. We would not be chasing the rallies of the last few weeks, uh, but today, the new- news flow feels horrible. Two days ago, you know, one day ago, the news flow felt great. Don't get caught up in the daily news flow because it'll make you crazy. But if you can buy a good business that's paying a 4% yield that is going to live to fight another day, is going to get through this with pretty good economics, you do that uh, and, and try not to focus as much on the day-to-day volatility.
2: When you say it's a good time to buy certain companies that you think that can withstand this, other people seem to think big tech is the place to go. We've seen those shares rally with the exception, say, of Alphabet uh, due to the advertising revenue, which has lagged behind. Which companies are you really focusing on here?
4: So we're looking at companies like AbbVie or Comcast or CVS or at and uh, All are paying uh, very, very healthy dividends. They absolutely will get through this. CVS's business has been pretty good. AbbVie uh, has reaffirmed the dividend. They'll be growing the dividend. Their earnings are very good. Uh, at and is paying over a six and a half percent yield while you wait. Uh, we think they're going to get through this in pretty good form. All of those are pretty good businesses. We also, if, if you know, and again, we wouldn't put too much in, but we. We also think that banks are going to come through this in very good form. And if you don't mind the additional volatility, uh, that you can buy companies like a Wells Fargo or a PNC. PNC announced earnings today. Uh, it, was, it was actually a pretty good call. They really have their arms around this. Uh, they said that one thing that's going to come out of this when all is said and done is the quality of their loan portfolio. And, and it's paying over a, almost a 5% dividend. Uh, so those are the type of companies you can buy. A year from now, we think you're going to be pretty happy and feel that you're pretty smart. David,
1: how concerned are you about balance sheets? A couple of companies you mentioned, most notably AT&T and Comcast, carrying a tremendous amount of debt. Now, they've got good cash flows, but if this thing gets uh, really ugly and for longer, how concerned are you about uh, credit and balance sheets?
4: We're very concerned about balance sheets if you're in a leveraged uh, business or a business that's going to be impacted by the coronavirus. So what would that include? That would include the automobile companies, hotel chains, Uh, restaurants, uh, the cruise lines, uh, airlines. Those companies, if they've got too much debt, are going to have no revenues. In terms of Comcast, their revenues are going to be absolutely solid. They're going to come through this. They've got great cash flow. Uh, People are not going to be cutting off their services. Same with AT&T. We think that, um, you know, people right now are all working from home, so they either need their wireless or they need internet connections. Uh, So ATT will get through this. Uh, So in both of those cases, you know, we're very 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 comfortable that the companies have the cash flow to get through this. But your point is exactly right. We would avoid companies and industries that are going to see a 30% cut in revenues and have debt because they can get caught and really hurt.
2: David, I'm struggling with the historical reference point to this moment, and people talk about the numbers and how you can't really look at the numbers right now. We're getting, you know, horrible retail sales, the Empire Manufacturing Survey, dreadful record lows, record plunges, record job losses, record this, record that, and and how do you sort of create a compass forward? It's faith. It's faith that we're going to recover on the other side. Is there anything that you're clinging to that's beyond faith that things will reverse to normal, in terms of data that underscore your point, which is things will essentially uh, eventually go back to the way that they were, and you can count on these previous ideas of stable balance sheets and companies that seem to have uh, a viable business model.
4: That, that's exactly the point. So, basically, the vast majority of the time, the market looks out at earnings. 12 to 15 months out. So if you do that, you're really talking about 2021 earnings and that's how financial markets work. So the part of faith that that our analysis relies on is that Right now, the pharmaceutical companies are spending tens of billions of dollars to find a solution to the coronavirus. So we think at some point, whether it's three months from now or six months from now or nine months from now, uh, we're going to be in a more normal environment. There will be either a treatment for the coronavirus. uh, Hopefully, Johnson & Johnson that said they're going to have a vaccine by next um, February or March uh, is successful in that endeavor. And if something like that happens, all of a sudden, people will start to behave more or Normally, they'll be less scared about getting something and dying, which is a perfectly rational uh, fear right now. Uh, And then the economy starts to open up. And at that point, the market looks beyond current earnings and current horrific economic trends. And the surviving companies are going to be valued on 2021 earnings. And on that basis, you're able to get a lot of really good businesses at 12 times earnings. And the other part of the equation is when the fear factor is out and when the, the world returns to normal, interest rates are essentially at zero. The federal government will have spent uh, trillions of dollars, whether it's $2 trillion or $5 trillion. All that money will be out there. Interest rates will be at zero. Uh, bonds are not offering any reasonable alternative. Stocks will become pretty attractive. Uh, and, and that, again, leads to looking out at earnings, looking out at, at companies and valuations based on the last 100 years of valuations.
1: David Katz, President and Chief Investment Officer of Matrix uh, Asset Advisors. David, thanks so much uh, for staying on the line with us.
0: The countdown has begun. This May, 1,000 global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City, Qatar, and premier sponsor q
2: Well, the horrendous economic data just keeps rolling in this morning, in addition to the empire manufacturing data that fell uh, at a record pace. We also saw a record decline in retail sales. And joining us to really put this into perspective at a time when people don't know what numbers to cling to is Seema Shah, Director of Consumer and Retail Trends at Credit Intel, joining us on the phone from Long Island. Seema, so glad to have you. On, on the phone here, I'm wondering, what are you looking at in terms of the retail numbers to give you some gauge of how bad this is going to get?
5: I think the biggest and most obvious trend that came out of the numbers, it just sort of highlights the shift away from discretionary spending and to essentials. You saw grocery stores had a really strong number, I think it was up 26%. But if you look at what happened to clothing, furniture, uh, department stores, I think that just add, that risk will continue to grow the longer we're in this shelter-in-place situation. Then it begs the question: What happens when we come out? How will these discretionary retailers be able to perform? Like, what do they need to do, and what does that mean for them? I think that's the biggest takeaway <laughs> I'm seeing right now.
1: Yeah, it's interesting, Seema. I think the uh, you know one of the questions that we've been, or one of the areas of discussion most we've had today and, and over the last several days is. How do we think the consumer will change, if at all, on the other side of this? Is is there any data that you've seen that's suggesting that there will be a fundamental change or if any of the retailers you've spoken to, have they suggested that they expect a fundamental change or will the consumer on the other side of this just kind of go back to kind of normal?
5: I think it's more likely you'll see a change of the consumer because now we're going to be going on almost two months pretty soon of sheltering in place, changing your behavior, having six feet between you and anybody else when you go to the grocery store. So I feel like some of those habits will be hard to change, and it might require retailers to change how they are running their stores, how restaurants. uh, We know that in Hong Kong they have set up tables six feet away from each other, and there's sanitizer everywhere. So I think people's behavior will change. Certainly, but I think the bigger question is how their finances will change and what does that mean for discretionary retailers when, you know, over 17 million people are filing for unemployment claims. Retailers across the board have furloughed many, many, if not all, of their employees. Other companies are also struggling. So how do these people come back, right? And I don't think that the stimulus that they're going to get at some point, a one-time check is going to be enough for them to shift their spending back to the way that it was. So I think pe- that's actually what I'm concerned
2: about. Well, when people talk about the retail sector, they've talked about how Amazon has really consolidated share. and We've seen a shift uh, mm-hmm. that's just accelerated to online ordering just because nobody is allowed to go out and the stores are all closed. It was interesting right. in your notes, you said that actually there is a potential positive outcome from this, that there will be a re-emphasis on brick and mortar. Can you talk a little bit about that?
5: Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things that you notice when you come away from this is like when people really need something, they want something, they want to go and get it themselves. And you saw with Amazon having these huge supply chain issues, despite having one of the best supply chains out there, they just could not bring in the essential product on time. They're not even taking new grocery deliveries. You cannot get a spot to get Amazon fresh delivery. Even regular goods were taking a long time up until recently, and they halted essential you know, non-essential sales. And I think that's a huge risk. And it it was a benefit to people like Target and Walmart who are selling some of those merchandise, but that you could go and get it right away. And I think for them, it was even better economically because it's cheaper for a, a client or customer to go pick up a product from the store than having the retailer ship that product to them. And I think that type of that was really highlighted, I think, in this crisis, and it, it it shows why you need to have an omni-channel strategy, not an online strategy and not a brick-and-mortar-only strategy.
1: Seema, talk to us a little bit about the balance sheets of some of the retailers you look at. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of retailers, they operate on you know very tight margins. I'm not sure how much cash they carry. How are you thinking about that?
5: Yeah, so Credit Intel, we put out a couple of reports recently, which we keep updating, and one of them is the retailers at risk and, you know, why are they at risk? Well, first of all, they have most of them withdrew their guidance. They closed their stores. They furloughed their employees. Most, if not all of them, have drawn down on their revolvers just to make sure they have a bit of a cap cushion and suspended uh, their operating expenses, including, in some cases, not paying their rent for the month of April. And we'll see how long this goes. But the way we're looking at it is just, like, how long can these companies – Uh, when we look at the credit rate, how long can they sustain in this type of environment when you don't, have a zero revenue environment based on your balance sheet and how much cash you're able to get, right? And so there are retailers, you know, we're hearing a lot about JCPenney, and we at Credit Hill had a cash burn analysis on it that based on certain assumptions, if they cut their capital spending by 25%, uh, they wind down uh, accounts payable and accrued liabilities by 40 to 50%, and a couple of other assumptions, including the fact that they paid rent, that in a good scenario, they have liquidity for 5.1 months, right? So this has certain assumptions, but you have to think about, we're doing this with many of our retailers to see who is at most at risk. And so retailers like JCPenney, who are already sort of struggling, and then you also have like a Stage Doors or a GNC or those type of players, how do they come out of this? Um, In many cases, I think it's going to be really hard for them because it's even you can't even go to bankruptcy at this point because you can't liquidate your inventory, right? So Models and Pier 1, even that is on hold. So yep. I, I think that it just makes it a lot more difficult uh, for these guys.
2: Taking a step back, though, I mean – Mm-hmm. Trying to find a silver lining, just because right now mm-hmm. everything looks pretty dismal, and I'm I'm trying That's to kind of like I'm trying to be more optimistic here. But I mean, some of these retail uh, chains have been struggling for a long time. You talk about J.C. it's been on the chopping block for a long time, with a lot of traders Absolutely. betting against that company. There are a number of other retailers as well that have been sort of yes. the slow burn, and it's been accelerating in the burn uh, over the past mm-hmm. few years. Will they just wash out some of the weaker players and allow some of the stronger retailers? to actually consolidate, share, and, and put up a bitter fight against Amazon and other retailers?
5: I think so. And it's hard to say exactly who will make it out because companies don't want to fail and people protect them to the extent. But I think, yeah, you're going to see uh, those that have been struggling and sort of being able to muddle along for the last couple of years when the, you know, the consumer was quote-unquote strong and they were still struggling. Yeah, I think you'll see a shakeout and you'll see the stronger retailers – Take that share and, you know, and I think that would also include Amazon, right? I think that gives them more leverage because they continue to take share as well. So even though they have their own share of problems, they have the Whole Foods, they have the relationship with cold and Rite Aid, so they are building sort of an omni-channel strategy. So I definitely think you'll see that trend. So it's not like all retail will go away or everything is going to go online, but you'll definitely see who the winners are. And it will be most difficult for the smaller Retailers who maybe didn't have any omni-channel strategy to begin with or, you know, just don't have the balance sheet to sort of sustain a zero-revenue environment for multiple months.
1: Seema Shah, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your insight as always. Sima Shah, she's a Director of Consumer and Retail Trends at Credit Intel.
2: The focus today, in addition to uh, just the incredibly terrible economic data, has been on the banks reporting earnings, kicking off the earnings season, and loan loss provisions have been the key indicator of how steep the recession may be, at least in the eyes of the major banks. And there's no one better to talk to about this than Allison Williams, Senior Analyst for the Global Investment Banks for Bloomberg Intelligence. She joins us now. Allison. now that we've had a couple of hours to process the earnings and the tw- $24 billion of loan loss provisions set aside for souring loans in the in the weeks and months ahead by Citigroup, J.P. Morgan, at Wells Fargo, uh, and, and Citigroup. What's your big takeaway here?
6: So the takeaway, um, I think my big takeaway from the quarter is that we've sort of only just begun. And I think, um, you know, that's probably the main concern among investors. So as you said, you know, we've had uh, 24 billion in provisions, 25 if you include um, Goldman. Um, that's an increase of about 20 billion compared with a year ago. Wow. And you know, when the management's are talking, uh, you know, yesterday's um, management's were quite negative. You're sort of hearing some mixed comments, but when we look at some of the expectations that are built in. And also just hearing from these managements that we're only at the beginning. It's it's qualitative. and In a way, it's just a guesstimate. So we really, you know, have no idea how bad this can get.
1: Yeah, that's interesting because you can't really go back to the playbook of 2008, 2009, a very different situation. So were, we're the management team saying, listen, we're kind of taking a best guess here. We're probably going to, you may even see us come back in future quarters with even more. Is that kind of the message they're trying to send?
6: So J.P. Uh, J. Morgan, um, to begin with, said very distinctly that we, we're definitely or we're probably going to have more reserves in 2Q, being that, you know, today's reserves, or yesterday's reserves took into account, you know, uh, their economic forecast um, from their firm of 20 percent, 25 percent unemployment and over 10 percent, I'm sorry, Over 25% drop in GDP, uh, over 10% unemployment rate. Those estimates already are worse, 40% down GDP, 20% 20% unemployment expected for 2Q. So already their estimates are stale. And then the second part of it is the government programs. As you said, you know, the, the 09 playbook doesn't work, but even at other cycles, we, we don't really know what the impact is going to be of these government programs, of all these deferrals, how much of these deferrals you know, will end up um, going back to good and how much um, will end up having to get charged off. And so we really won't know that until we start to move throughout this quarter. So, you know, 10Qs, we might get some update. May conferences, if they go virtual, uh, we may get some update, um, but we really just don't know.
2: So why are J.P. Morgan and Bank of America leading the declines that we're seeing today in the major U.S. banks?
6: So I think, you know, when we saw the numbers come out yesterday, um, I think some investors just sort of looked at the top line of reserves and with those numbers perhaps thought JP Morgan is conservative, look at Wells, they're much lower. You know, they, we take, we look at the dollar provisions, but we look at those provisions, you know, versus their loan book. JP Morgan with a 2.5% ratio, you know, Wells Fargo sort of less than half of that. But then we saw a Citigroup come out today um, with granted less dollar uh, provision number, but their ratio. Um, well exceeding that now of J.P. Morgan, perhaps making J.P. Morgan, uh, who appeared conservative, now seeming less so. And, um, you know, Bank of America as well, uh, you know, again, the question is sort of sort of how bad things are going to get from here, how well you prepared. The card business, where all, the, all three of the banks that we just discussed are very big in this, Wells Fargo is less big um, you know, that's where we're seeing the majority of the provisions. That, that product tends to have the highest loss rate. It's unsecured, it's a thing that people don't pay first. Um, and so, I think that's, you know, going to be the area of focus in the coming month or so.
1: So, Alison, I know you listen to all these conference calls and these big bank CEOs. They really have great visibility in terms of they see lots of the global economy uh, around the world. Did they suggest how long they anticipate Uh, a downturn to last? Uh, I think most people kind of dropped the discussion of a V-shaped, but now more of a U or an L. What are they kind of thinking at this point?
6: Well, I think, um, you know, one contrast maybe, and again, I think a lot of these managements are sort of calling on their research departments. um, And again, this goes to the quality of their reserves. So Bank of America, you know, expecting a big drop in 2Q like everyone else, but also expecting negative um, growth or declines in GDP for several quarters to come, versus JP Morgan um, that th- is currently factoring in more of a rebound in the back half. Uh, that being said, I think all managements do sort of acknowledge um, that we don't necessarily uh, know how long this is going to go on, and so the key risk, I think, there to investors, obviously, yes, it's, it's the provisions, but it's the dividends, where managements are committed, The Fed said they don't see any need for cuts at this time. But to the extent that this uh, downturn is unprecedented and we don't know how long it's going to go on, we don't know if there will um, become more pressure if this becomes a prolonged situation.
1: Alison Williams, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. We know you're busy with all these big bank earnings, but we appreciate you taking the time. Allison Williams, she's a senior analyst covering all things financials for Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, giving us her perspective and kind of Lisa, frankly, sharing that the management teams really don't know. These are the provisions we have as of right now, but there could be more.
2: Yeah, and, and typically banks do take a conservative approach. The question is just, how do you even know what a conservative approach is when you have no idea what we're heading into?
1: Yeah, exactly right. And I think they're just trying to simply say um, this is kind of what we know now. We're relying upon the data we have now. But to the extent this thing goes even longer, it could be uh, even worse. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney.
2: I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz One. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.